bad boys, bad boys. What you gonna do? What you gonna do when they come for you? Olin, it's the 3rd of March, 2023. And I'm here with the third installment of talks on the fifth sun, Olin. Earthquake, movement, change of heart. And the subtitle of this talk is Across the Threshold of Cruelty. Now I introduced my other talks with two words in Nahuatl. And I indicated when I pronounced those words, that it was as if I was a sorcerer casting a spell. Of course, I'm just playing games, right? I'm just playing mythomaniac games. But I'm not the only one who's playing mythomaniac games on this planet. You may have noticed the technocrats, the globalist overlords, are playing a certain mythomaniac, megalomaniac game whose agenda was written a long time ago, but within the scope of recorded history. And that agenda of the Zadik, the ultra-righteous, is now in your face. It's facing the world. And those who love life and respect life are now in a life or death confrontation with those who hold and enforce that agenda. And what can turn that battle to success for life, freedom, truth, beauty, innocence, goodness, pleasure, decency, and common sense. What can turn it? Is there one single decisive element that can turn that battle or change the odds for the success of all that is good, true, and beautiful against all that is ugly, deceitful, and hateful? That's my opening question. And my answer to that question is yes, and I intend to tell you the answer to the best of my ability. Nana Watsin. Nana, Mama, what are you seeing? What are we seeing? Mama, Aeonic Mother, what is to be seen? Shipetotek. Look at the sheep people and look at what technology is doing to them and how it drags them to their oblivion. Well, having begun these three talks with the invocation of those powerful words from the ancient Toltec language of the Mexica and those who preceded the Mexica, it's appropriate 
that I invoke a third word with the power of sorcery. Now you cannot decode this word. It doesn't exhibit the same kind of phonemic baby language as the others. And there's a reason for that, because this word has an encoded meaning. It is, in a sense, the name of the beast. What do you think of that? Huh? The name of the beast. Tomega Therian. I've talked about the beast, the Gnostic sabotage in the book of Revelation. And I pointed out that the AI system to control the world cannot be the beast because the beast is an animal and an animal is alive and AI is not alive and never will be. And so to invoke the theme of this third talk, I use the name, two names of that beast. First, Inoatl, Sipaktili, Sipaktili, and then in Sanskrit, Makara. And what do those two words mean? Well, they actually appear as zodiacal animals. If you look into the constellational lore of the ancient Hindus, you find an animal in the sky. And likewise, if you look into the Maya Aztec zodiac, and that is this animal, Sipaktiri Makara, the crocodile. Now here we are at six minutes into this talk. And as usual, if you have the determination and the sense of humor to stick around, you generally find that I get to the point at the end. And I've been asked the question, of course, well, why don't I get to the point at the beginning? Sure, I can do that. But can you handle it? And where will you go with it? Now, I'd like to know if I stood face to face to any one of you, if you could get to the point in five minutes. Could you get to the point face to face with me about your life, your fate, the fate of humanity? Could you get to the point in five minutes or 50 or five days, I'd like to see you do that. But I am getting to the point right here. So I can tell you up front that the solution that changes everything to the advantage of goodness, truth, freedom, and beauty is something that I shall call moral deterrence. Moral deterrence. This is the subject of my talk, the third talk on the fifth sun. And I can advise you going into it, because I'm going to spend the rest of the talk attempting to explain what moral deterrence is. I can advise you 
that even if you understand my words, even if you feel it in your heart, even if you get it perfectly, what I'm saying, it won't mean shit unless you cross a certain threshold and enter the realm of the crocodile. Now I've said that sipatili uh, is a Nahuatl word, and it doesn't translate so easily as the other two, does it? Well, there is a leading phoneme, C. So maybe it's telling you to see something. It's telling you, see, pactili. But what on earth is pactili? Those phenomes, or phonemes, excuse me, don't immediately suggest a conversion into English, do they? Or perhaps into any other language. So what is the implication? It is that the crocodile is hidden and you have to look to see it, but you have to know where to look to see it. And so I'll tell you exactly where to look. There is a place in your body and it is midway between the base of your spine and your solar plexus. Now, some of you may know, if you study the ancient chakra system, of which there are many variations, that the ancient Hindu seers and yogis said that there were six or seven chakras in a vertical line beginning at the base of the spine. Do you remember that? Did you ever run into that intel? And so the base chakra is at the base of the spine, muladhara. And then you come up to the solar plexus, and you can feel that. Well, first of all, feel the base of your spine. You can reach back and feel where it is, the coccyx, right? And you can reach around in front of your body, and you can feel where the solar plexus is, right? In the tummy, right? More or less where the belly button is. But you can't so easily feel the place that's in between them because it is hidden. But that place, called the Svadhisthana, is the domain of the crocodile. And it is also the location of the power of moral deterrence. All right, so far, so good. Always a little bit of suspense to spice the exposition. I enjoy that. I don't know whether you do or not, but why should I care if I enjoy it? So here it comes, your local, friendly, neighborhood sorcerer, your modern-day proxy of Tezcalipoca, explaining to you what is moral deterrence. And to do that, he has to take a roundabout route. 
Unfortunately, there's no other way to go about it. And the technique of explanation that he uses is to describe something that everyone knows is common. Every intelligent person, every normal human being knows this. To give the description of what is normal, general, you could also say it's universal for the human animal in order then to point out something which is not normal and which is exceptional. And that is moral deterrence. So I can tell you at the beginning that of the six, seven billion human animals said to be living on this planet, the vast proportion of them do not hold the power of moral deterrence in their bodies or in their minds. So what first is the case that is not exceptional and universal? I give you a description of experience and it goes like this. I'll talk to you in the second person. Suppose that you desire to do something in life. Suppose, for instance, that you desire to walk on a beach in the Caribbean, barefoot, with a sarong around your waist and a t-shirt or just a bathing suit, and walk on a beautiful beach in the Caribbean and go plunge into the water. You want to do that. That's the first stage, the desire to do something. But can you, can you do that? Maybe you're living in a situation in life where it doesn't seem possible that you'll ever have the means or the opportunity to take that lovely walk on a Caribbean beach that you want to take. But suppose you can. Suppose you can go there. Well, that's the second stage. There's something you want to do, and there's something that you can do. You have the means to do it. It could be playing the Japanese koto, you see. Maybe you want to play the Japanese koto. Then you undertake how to learn to play it. Then you can play it and then you play it. So there are three stages in the development of this proposition. What you want to do, and what you can do, and then what you actually do. Now let's go back to the example of the Caribbean. Suppose, yeah, you've wanted to go there since you were a child, or maybe you wanted to go and trek in the Himalayas, or maybe you wanted to go to Disneyland or Hollywood. And then it came about that you found the means, life gave you the means and the opportunity. Okay, now you can go. But then suppose that you never do go. I'll give you an example from my own life. When I was a teenager, I wanted to write a novel. I was very inspired by certain novelists. 
And so I made certain attempts to write a novel. And as you know, I'm rather a literate person. And I have skills of literacy and communication and reading. And it became clear to me after some years, yeah, I can do it. I've got the capacity. I can write a novel. So there I am. I want to write a novel, first level. I can write a novel, second level. But did I ever write a novel? Nope, I didn't. What's with that third level? And what's with the difference between wanting to do something and being capable of doing it and, in fact, not ever doing it? Now, look at this closely. I think it's pretty obvious that you could read that proposition as a formula of failure or at the very least of disappointment. You know, imagine if I get to the last week or last day of my life and I'm reflecting and I say to myself, well, John, you always wanted to write a novel and you knew you could because you've got the gifts for language, but you never did it, did you? How do you feel about that, you see? And how many things in life could be, how many situations, how many options, how many desires could be gathered into this category. And I'm going to use a word to describe or categorize all of those instances and stop for a moment, just pause the talk and just think to yourself, well, is this something I... I, I often or always wanted to do since I was a child. Oh. And yeah, I realized, yeah, I can do it. I can. I, I have the ability, but you didn't do it. And when you reflect on that, I want you to, or I invite you, to apply the term deterrence to explain that phenomenon. So going back to my case, which is a simple and direct example, if I get to the end of my life and I have never written a novel, although I wanted to and I can, how do I, what do I conclude? What is my conclusion? Well, I must conclude that something deterred me from doing it. See? So this idea of deterrence, to be deterred from something, is important and it's the foundation of the takeaway of this talk. First, you have, you need a clear concept of what deference is, then put it into the context I'm talking about, and then go to the specific and exceptional case of moral deterrence. Now, there is already a way that I could illustrate or present a preview of what moral deterrence is, although it is not exactly the final case in my exposition here. 
take children in a schoolyard and they tend to fall into groups. There are some loners and there are some, some girls or boys gather over there by the bicycles and some over there. You know how it is. And suppose that in one group of young boys in a schoolyard, there's a bully. And the bully tends to pick on another kid. Let's call him Tommy. So Tommy is the target of this bully. And it's, you know, sad because maybe the bully manages to catch Tommy when he's uh, alone in the corridor of the school or when he's on his way home and he bullies him and he may even hit him and attack him physically and abuse him. So in this illustration, I'm calling the boy who is the particular target of a bully. We won't name the bully. Tommy. But suppose that Tommy also has his little circle of friends, different from the circle of friends of the bully, or maybe he only has one friend, and let's call his friend Jason. And let's say that Jason is someone who can stand up to the bully. He wants to, because he doesn't want to see his little friend Tommy, who's not quite able to defend himself, to be abused or insulted and humiliated. He wants to stand up against the other bully, the unnamed bully, and he can because he has the muscular power and the body and the courage, and maybe on some occasion he does. But you see, even if he doesn't, even if Jason doesn't stand up against that bully, the fact that he wants to and can has a deterrent force on the bully. And the bully knows he can't go around picking on Tommy anymore because there will be consequences, bad boys. When they come for you, what you going to do, you see? So when you look at the position that Jason is in, you see an example of deterrence. But look at it very closely. In one case, Jason may actually have to do what he wants to do and is capable of doing and take a shot at the bully and push him down, push him away, physically assault him. It may come to that. It may come to the moment when push comes to shove or when threat comes to push and push comes to shove, but not necessarily because the deterrent power that Jason holds stops the bully. It defeats the bully, even if Jason doesn't act on it. That is the factor of deterrence. Now, the word deterrence came into my vocabulary in my teen years, and it often came up in the news in the expression, well, nuclear deterrence. So the fabrication, the fable, the narratives that they told us during the Cold War after World War II was, that, oh, well, the Russians have nuclear weapons and they might use them, so we need to have nuclear weapons in order to have deterrence. And we don't necessarily have to use our nuclear weapons against the Russians, although we can, but it's enough that we have them 
and thus we have deterrent power. So with these illustrations, I can show you that there is a kind of double switch to the power of deterrence. You can keep it on neutral. You want to do something, and you can do something, but you don't do it. Or you can switch the switch to action, and you can do it. This is a really crucial distinction. So if you're coming along with me here, uh, it's fair to assume that you can see how many things that you didn't do in your life could be put in this category. And something deterred you. And there's no crime in that. It's not necessarily a tragedy, although it could be. It could be a tragedy that you never ended up doing something that you wanted to do and could do. And it could be taken as a failure or a disappointment, but not necessarily. The conditions of life are very complex. And it is an important factor in your life. It is significant in your life that you wanted to do something and knew you could do it, even if you didn't do it. So give yourself a break there. I'm not setting up this picture so that you can turn around and criticize or fault yourself because something deterred you from taking a certain action in life, a certain course of action. No. My intention in this setup is to highlight in the most vivid way the existence of an exception to the formula of deterrence. That's what I'll call it. There is an exception to it. And to my mind, as far as I've reflected in search so far, this is the only exception to it. And in this exception, the formula has a different outcome. So suppose that there is something that you want to do, really want to do, in your guts and also in your heart. And suppose that you know in your heart with complete conviction that you can do it. You have the capacity. But let's say that life doesn't present you ever with a specific and concrete occasion to do it. Now, as I said before, normally that could be viewed as a formula of failure or disappointment. But I'm telling you that there is another case of deterrence, a supreme, outstanding, and exceptional case. How is it exceptional? Well, in this way. There is something that you might want to do. And if you look into yourself, you might find the capacity to do it. And even if you never do it, 
it doesn't matter. Because the fact that you hold the conviction to do it, the determination to do it, has an effect upon the entire world. And in particular, it has an effect upon the presence of evil in this world and the enemies of life. So what I'm getting at here is an attitude. You could call it that. You could say that moral deterrence is an attitude, but it's an attitude that you carry in your body, just like you carry your bowels and your liver and your pancreas. It's a material force, and this attitude has a deterrent force against the evil in the world, even if you never act on it. And of course, there might be an occasion when you do, but that goes to another scenario. So I limit myself here in this talk to the final explanation of what I'm getting at. And I'll put it in this way. If you are to own the power of moral deterrence that is unique to the human animal in facing evil, there is a requirement. It's not theoretical. You can't just tell yourself or persuade yourself. You've got to prove it. There is a requirement that comes with the act of owning the power of moral deterrence. And it is the same for everyone. It is universal. It is inescapable. It is the ground zero of human morality in the face of evil. And that requirement is that you cross the threshold of cruelty. You step across a boundary across the threshold of cruelty. And I ask you to consider really carefully that when you contemplate this word to deter, I ask you to consider that there is something that might deter you from crossing that boundary so that you can own the power of moral deterrence. Do you see that equation? Do you see that proposition? And what is it that would deter you, that would prevent you or hold you back? Well, what do I mean by the threshold of cruelty? What does that imply to you? It implies that you and an imaginary number of other people on this planet might be deterred from ever admitting that you want to be cruel and want to cause suffering to others and that you can do it, you have it in you to do it, even though life never presents you, perhaps, with an explicit, flagrant opportunity to do it. But if it did, you would, and you know you would, and you would bring the totality of yourself to that moment, which might be a life or death moment. And were it not a life or death moment, 
It might be a moment that carries severe consequences considering the insanity of the social order in which we live. You feel me so far? So what is it that would deter a human animal from crossing the threshold of cruelty? Well, what comes to my mind is the concept that that human animal has of humanity. What is your concept of your own humanity? You know, there's an unimaginable number. (laughs) There is an unimaginable number of people in this world for one reason or another who cannot admit to harboring the desire to harm others, to express cruelty, and to cause suffering. The confusion about suffering is a huge topic, and I'm not going to go on a digression. I've talked about it here and there at various times. How does any normal, sane person, normal, decent, goodwilled person look at the topic of suffering? Well, you don't want to suffer. You don't want to be the target of others who want you to suffer. And there are people in the world who want you to suffer. And they are doing something about it. They want you to suffer. They can do things to make you suffer and hurt you and be cruel to you. And they are doing it. They're already at the third stage of the proposition. And they're all over the place. But you, you're an ordinary human being. Your heart is with humanity. Oh, yes. Well, I can't allow, I can't admit that I actually want to be cruel in certain instances. I can't admit that there was a, there is an occasion, any occasion in life that would arise where I would actually want to be cruel and being capable of acting cruelty, I would do that in a specific instance toward a specific individual, another human animal. You see, that feeling that your humanity is invested in that kind of deterrence is what needs a change of heart. The change of heart comes when you stand on the threshold of cruelty. And when you take that step over it, then you gain the power of moral deterrence. And it's not enough to say, we just want them to go away. We just want them to stop, right? You see all these things happening in the social order. You may see that in your immediate environment, in your family, your community, certainly in your nation. You look at your nation and you see the so-called politicians and leaders who are really criminals and misleaders and their policies and their protocols and their programs. And you look at the the evil and the harm and it's, it's sadistic. There's something that happened for two years on this planet. I don't have to name what it is. If that wasn't an obvious and outrageous display of sadism, well, what isn't? So the evidence is a plenty and ample that there are some human animals 
possessed by the spirit of evil and deceit and power and control, who, yes, want to be cruel toward others and harm them, yes, have the means and opportunity to do it, and yes, they do do it. And how can you stand up against them as an individual? This is all about individuals. The change of heart of Olin is one heart at a time. One heart at a time changes the odds and the fate of the world drama turns on one life at a time. That is how this experiment has been designed to work. So the very fact that you can hold the power of moral deterrence in yourself is the game changer. And those who cannot hold that power and cannot own it and admit it, those who are deterred by what they call their sense of humanity, they are not part of the final resolution and correction of what's happening in this world. They are not essential. They will not play the decisive role. Crossing the threshold of cruelty. If you own moral deterrence, that's the proof that you do. Or to put it another way around, you don't even have it to own if you don't step across that threshold. But can you do that? When you look into your heart and then down into your belly and down into that hidden place, the layer of the crocodile, sipakteli. And can you admit, yeah, I would really like to hurt certain people. And I know I'm capable of it. I've got the fortitude. And maybe even I should do something to make sure that I have the capacity, either by physical strength or the use of weapons. And when you own that you really want to see suffering, you want to cause others to suffer, then you have the power of moral deterrence in you. And I swear to you, to the best of my knowledge, that holding that power can deter the evil in this world, even if life never gives you the opportunity in the face of a clear and present challenge to do anything about it. You don't have to go to stage three, the doing stage, for the power of moral deterrence to affect the world. It affects the world and it impacts the perpetrators, even if you don't act on it. But it has to be real and you have to really know and admit honestly that you are capable of enacting cruelty, but not, I must add, as punishment. No, it is not punishment. And not judge yourself, not be deterred 
by the thought that in some way that's not the kind of human animal that you want to be. But I can tell you straight out that if you can't bring yourself to be that kind of human animal, ultimately you are not going to make a difference in what we're facing. And you're not going to change the odds. But every single human animal who crosses that boundary changes the odds. That deterrent force in itself, even if it is not enacted and demonstrated, is the decisive factor in getting to a world worth living in, a future worth living in the beauty to come. So, what can I say at the end? Well, that's a lot of hot air and a lot of big talk coming from yours truthfully, right? So, take it or leave it. It might be really the best advice you ever had, or the worst, or you might be indifferent. But while I'm at it, let me give you a little financial advice. You know, I'm a market, I'm insider in the market. You didn't know that, did you? Yeah, I'm always looking for the prospects of how to get rich and how to make more money in the future, you know? And if you want to come become rich, when this game changes and the advantage goes to truth, and you want to make a fortune, in the beauty to come. Here's my humble business insider tip. Sipaktele. Consider investing in crocodile farms. <laughs>